Good afternoon, everybody. Hello. Welcome. Um, the um, story of Man of Mancha, the book, as we call it in musical theatre, um, was written by somebody called Dale Wasserman. And Dale Wasserman um, was a, an orphan from quite a young age, and he rode the rails in America. He was a hobo on the trains. From, uh, he was born in 1914, so in the early part of the 20th century, he was riding the rails. And then by about um, the time he was about 19, he settled in Los Angeles and started writing, um, directing, getting involved in theatre, and he was completely self-taught. And the story goes that he was um, directing a musical on one occasion and decided it was so badly written, he just was going to walk out and write his own. So he walked out and he then started writing. He didn't write this immediately. He wrote a lot of television plays. And at the point that television was in its infancy by the 1950s, he was writing a lot of television plays. And apparently there are over 50 to his name. Um, and then in about 1959, he went to Spain and he was researching for a film. But the media got hold of his presence there in Spain and decided that he must be there researching this novel, Don Quixote. And he read about himself in the papers researching to write this novel. So he thought, well, I better read it at least. <laughs> so he read it and he decided that it was just impossible to put this novel on the stage. It was just too immense. Um, I'm trying to remember what he said. It was like um, forcing a lake into a bucket. It's so diverse, so immense, so many characters. Um, but what he noticed in one of the episodes was an encounter between Don Quixote and a farmer. And the, um, Don Quixote says to the farmer, I know who I am and who I may be if I choose. And what Wasserman realised was that that quotation was actually the language of an actor, an actor who takes on many roles. So it's not just that people, we all take on many roles in life, but he really started to think about Cervantes rather than about Don Quixote as the character and wondered actually about making a play about Cervantes. And so that's what he wrote. And he wrote in 1959, he wrote a television play called I, Don Quixote. And that play, which was broadcast, um, was then optioned as a musical. But it took a long time before it actually made it to the stage. Um, and by 1966, he managed finally to get it to the stage through a series of workshops at the Goodspeed Opera House in Connecticut. And his partners in that were jo uh, Mitch Lee, who was most well known as a jazz composer, but also he founded the very first music, uh, incidental music and jingle commercial music um, company in America. And that company was called Music Makers Inc. Very American. Um, and he wrote incidental music for a lot of early American television shows. Um, but he then also wrote incidental music for two plays before he collaborated on, on Man of La Mancha. And both he and Joe Darian, who wrote the lyrics, Joe Darian was a lyricist in pop music. They all came together, they created this one musical and none of them really had any subsequent success. This seems to be a bit of a one-off. Uh, Mitch Lee did write subsequent musicals and also an, uh, an opera, a jazz opera, that the book was written by a very young Mel Brooks called Shinbone Alley. Um, but none of them was hugely successful, so you won't really have heard of any of their other works. 
Um, one of um, Mitch Lee's shows managed 68 performances on Broadway, but the majority of them really didn't either get to Broadway or they were um, panned and closed almost immediately. So that team got together. They created, through this workshop process, they created this musical that we're going to see this afternoon. Um, and it was immensely successful. It, was, it opened off-Broadway at the Goodspeed Opera House in Connecticut. It then moved to Broadway to the Anto Washington Square Theatre where it played 22 previews and then it lasted about three years before it moved to Broadway. And it played 2,328 performances on Broadway in that very first um, run. At the same time, it was doing national tours. It came to the UK. It only played, surprisingly, it only played 253 performances over here. So we clearly didn't like it as much as the Americans did. And maybe that's something we might talk about at some point, you know, in terms of some of the content. Um, so it played in the West End for 253 performances uh, starring Keith Michel. Um, and there are a number of people who obviously have played the role. Richard Kiley played it very frequently. If any of you know um, American performers, musical theatre performers, Richard Kiley played it repeatedly in America. And the cast recording has Brian Stokes Mitchell on it. And surprisingly, Placido Domingo has done a studio recording of the part. So anyway, that's a little bit of background about the um, writers and the show. Um, the story that we're going to see, the, um, the story it concerns Cervantes, who is in prison. The Inquisition have imprisoned him and he's in a cell. Within the cell, a, uh, a kangaroo court is set up by the prisoners to try him. And the prisoners do this to each other and those who fail, you know, who are convicted in, inside the prison, are, their goods are all stolen. So he's trying to protect his manuscript, which we imagine is the story of Don Quixote. And in order to do that, to defend himself, what they do is they act out the story, or a small part of the story of Don Quixote. And I'm going to hand over to Jonathan, who's going to tell us a little bit about Cervantes and the story. Yes, yeah, so thank you very much. Um, I, I hadn't uh, realised that about Wasserman's life story actually but there are some parallels with Cervantes's which I'll I'll start off by talking about uh, today I think so uh, Cervantes himself was born in 1547 in Alcalá de Henares which is about 30 miles or so from Madrid and he died in in Madrid in 1616 just a few days um, uh, uh, after I think it was um, Shakespeare had died in in in, in England um, he he um, he was a soldier first, so he wasn't a he wasn't a writer straight away, and he 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 fled Spain, possibly um, having uh, been involved in an altercation in which a man died, and went to Italy, and he he joined uh, the Spanish forces that fought in the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. He was clearly a, a brave soldier. Um, he was ill during the battle, but he kept to his station and had and lost the use of his left hand when he was hit by um, by uh, by a shot from an arquebus um, he he 
he remained a soldier for another five years and when he decided to travel back to Spain in 1575, he had in his possession um, some letters of recommendation which, if anything, exaggerated his status as a, as a soldier. Unfortunately, um, his, his ship was overpowered by some North African corsairs and who thought he was much more important than he actually was. <laughs> so he was, he was ransomed. He actually spent five years in captivity in Algiers between 1575 and 1580 before finally being ransomed and, and coming back to Spain. When, when he, he got back to Spain, he, um, he began his writing career with a, uh, a fairly successful pastoral novel called La Galatea, which was published in 1585. But really his interest was in the theatre at that time. And he wrote a number of plays in the new theatres in Madrid, which were, which were reasonably uh, successful. Um, Eventually, though, <clears throat> the bad news for um, Cervantes was that um, Lope de Vega uh, outdid him on the stage and Lope's kind of theatre became much more popular than the kind of more neoclassical theatre that Cervantes was writing. So eventually, um, he, uh, he, he, his, the actor managers uh, stopped buying his plays. That meant that he had to think of another way of earning a living. And uh, as you know, in the 1580s, Spain was preparing to send uh, an armada, an invincible armada against England. Um, and Cervantes was one of the people who uh, went around Andalusia in the south of Spain requisitioning supplies for the armada. And he later became a tax collector there. Uh, three times, we, we think three times in this period, he ended up in, in prison, in debt, not we think through his fault, but through uh, one of his associates. Um, uh, and um, he says uh, later on, when he writes the prologue to uh, Don Quixote, which isn't published until 1605, that this was his child uh, born in prison. So many people think that his idea for writing Don Quixote came from that period in the 1580s when he was spending time in, in, in jail. Um, and I suspect that's where Wasserman mm. gets the initial idea yes. of, of a man of La Mancha uh, from. Um, he, as a failed uh, dramatist, he turned to, or he turned back to prose, and he maybe accidentally, maybe deliberately, wrote the first modern novel, Don Quixote, uh, which was part one of which was published in 1605 and part two of which was published in 1615. So although often it's published as one volume, the two, it's actually two novels published 10, ten years um, apart. And the second part he was encouraged to write because uh, a spurious part two appeared, uh, taking Don Quixote off in a different direction by a, a, a writer whose identity we still haven't discovered, but who called himself Avellaneda. So um, it, it, uh, I think that's probably um, hmm. probably all of the, the, the important um, landmarks in, in, hmm. in his life. But I think the things to the things to, to, to pick out are his time spent in in prison, the the possibility that his 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 masterpiece was first conceived and and engendered uh, there, and also um, something that I think we'll go on to talk about later, the fact that 
um, as a as having failed in one kind of writing, he became an innovator uh, in another one. And a kind of formal innovation, which we will come back to, was always important to him as a writer. Mm. Yes, I think I think something to think to pick up from uh, in that is this idea of being in prison, um, and the way in which then when he came to write this, uh, when Wasserman picked this up. He set the whole thing into in a prison. And one of the formal innovations in this show is this idea that it's framed in multiple ways. Before this um, show, we're talking about um, the play having been written in 1959. Well, just immediately before then, we have 1957, we have West Side Story as one of the key events. Before that, we're thinking about Rodgers and Hammerstein and their innovations. So what's happening in musical theatre just before this time is that um, the leading authors are promoting the idea that the important thing is to have the book, the music, the lyrics all integrated, and that's the term they used. It's, it was used by uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein in the publicity material for Oklahoma, and it really took off. It was, this was the term that everybody was to use, and that um, what we were aiming for was this idea of integration of book, music, and lyrics. And there was a long linear narrative through the entire plot of the show, and that was the way that musicals were best promoted. And this was the new book musicals that Rodgers and Hammerstein instigated. Of course, at the same time, there were lots of other types of musicals going on. But that idea of the single chronological trajectory was one that really had taken hold. Now, not all the musicals that were written in the interim had any formal other structure. There were comic music, com comedy musicals um, like Kiss Me Kate, for example, that has a show within a show. But what we're talking about is a, a particular line that's happened in musical theatre history. And then suddenly we get Man of La Mancha, which is formally quite different, because what it does is it has a show within a show, but we've got actually three layers of framing, because, of course, we are sitting in the auditorium seeing a show being performed and we recognise our star performers. But we've also got the performance that's being enacted on stage. We've got Cervantes talking about his novel and being imprisoned. And then in an inner show, we've got the prisoners acting out the, the tale of Don Quixote. So formally, we've got multiple metatextual layers. And that is something that in musical theatre terms didn't really start to happen until later. And we all talk about Cabaret as the in innovator in this form. Well, Cabaret was a year later. And actually, this play, as a play, was written in 1959. And Cabaret was not until 67. So in terms of its innovation, it was astounding. And it did win Tony Awards. It won five Tony Awards. Whereas in Britain, we didn't seem to recognise this innovation and, and um, acknowledge it in quite the same way as the Americans clearly did. Um, so do you want to talk about something? Yeah, yeah. so, so uh, well... Obviously, Wasserman was going to a, a master of the formal innovation. And you picked out the moment where Don Quixote, after his first sally, is travelling back um, to his village and comes across the, the local farmer and says, uh, I, I know who I am and I know who I can be. And that, that suggests this idea that he's, that he's an actor in a way. But, but actually, I think Wasserman could, was probably inspired by other other parts of of, uh, of Don Quixote the novel uh, and it, and its and its uh, formal structure. So what and and the most obvious of these and the thing that actually 
probably turned me into a into a hispanist when I read this um, when I was told to by my Spanish teacher in the in, in the sixth form. So I read uh, Don Quixote or Don Quixote in, in English, uh, aged age seventeen, I guess. Was when you get to the end of part one, chapter eight, and at that point, Don Quixote is engaged in this ferocious battle with a, with a Basque, and both of them have their swords raised, about to 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 cut the other's head in, in two, when the narrator interjects and says, unfortunately, I can't continue this story because um, I, can't, I can't find any more of it. And so he says, but because you know, I'm your friend, he calls himself the segundo autor, or the second author of this, because I'm, I'm, I'm your mate, you know, I've, I've worked really hard to go and try and find uh, the rest of Don Quixote's story, because we can't leave this battle like this. And, he, he, and so he goes off into the marketplace in Toledo, and he finds the story of Don Quixote being used as what today would be fish and chip wrappers, you know, mm -hmm. it used uh, to wrap raisins, and it's written in Arabic, and it turns out that the, the author who's continued the story is Thide Amete Benengeli, who's, who, who's written it in Arabic, and who, of course, says the segundo autor, will therefore be lying in anything he says about Don Quixote henceforth. Not only that, but um, the, our segundo autor has to find a local a man who can speak both Spanish and Arabic to translate this Arabic manuscript into into Spanish. So we're reading the rest of the story, which goes on for uh, 50 or so more chapters in part one and 70 chapters in part two, is all written by this Cide Amete, an invented, unreliable narrator. And every now and then you have the translator interjecting, saying, well, you know, I've, I've translated this chapter where Sancho speaks to his wife, but um, I can't believe really that Sancho could, he couldn't speak like that. So this must be a spurious chapter. So you, you don't really know uh, what to believe and, and what not to believe. At the same time as that, you've got what's become to be known as the Inquisition of Don Quixote's library. So, so his, his, uh, his household, when they realize that he's gone mad from reading too many books, they, they burn a lot of the books, but you get two chapters of literary criticism when the, the local priest and barber say, well, actually this book is rather good, we ought to keep it and save it from the flames. Oh, this one's really terrible, let's just chuck it out into the courtyard and we'll, and we'll burn it. So you have literature and the appreciation of literature built into the novel uh, right from the start. I mean, should, should I go on and say a little bit more about Cervantes as a, dra as a dramatist? Because in, in everything he does really, he's, he's formally innovative. He's best known for the formal innovations in Don Quixote, the novel, but he also wrote 12 um, exemplary stories, novelas ejemplares, in, in which he tried out different types of, of narrative. And above all, he wrote um, later in his life eight plays which he published, which was very unusual at the time, and he published them under the title of eight plays which have never been performed. And uh, this is because he couldn't, he simply couldn't sell them but they contain the kind of formal innovations that would become absolutely the norm with Brecht and, and more modern dramatists in the 20th century and beyond. So, for, for example, some of you may have seen the RSC put, putting on a play called Pedro the Great Pretender in 2004, and uh, that's a play where the, the main plot is uh, resolved at the end of Act One. 
and everything else that happens is just is just pure pure episode. Um, and and in another play, El Rufian di Chosso, um, he he brings on stage because the action of the play moves from Seville to Mexico between Acts One and Act Two, and a classical dramatist just or a neoclassical dramatist just can't do that. He brings on stage the characters of curiosity and comedia or play to have a discussion about about dramatic theory. So you have staged. Um, a, 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 this is a, what we'd call uh, what I'd tell my students is called a, a metatheatrical moment, and and in the in the in the novel, it's a metafictional moment where you are made aware of um, the fact that you're you're reading a book or you're or you're watching a play, uh, and and that illusion is deliberately deliberately broken for you. And it sounds yeah. like that's yeah. you yes, know the absolutely. idea that Wasserman was picking picking yes, up. Yes, absolutely, and I think this production does that too. Um, so there is a there is a moment in uh, the second half. The show was originally written as one complete. Um, Peace. There's not supposed to be an interval, but um, in this production there is an interval. Um, but towards the end, there is a moment where the prisoners don't like the ending and they ask for a different ending. And so a different ending is created. Um, and it, what it does is it leaves the text very open. So your interpretation of it is open. And I think that's one of the things that comes through in all the writing I've been reading about the novel, that the whole point of this type of structure is to allow many people to find many different meanings within it. And I think that's one of the things Wasserman meant about trying to put a lake into a bucket um, when he was talking about it. Yeah. Incidentally, the, the, um, the, the ballet version of Don Quixote, which some of you m might know, d does just focus on the story of Camacho's wedding, which is simply two chapters of part two of the novel. And I think that's mm. the solution that lots of adapters have taken when, when approached by this enormous mm. <laughs> novel and how to, yes. get it on, how to get it on stage. They've, the, some of the most successful adaptations have just taken one element of the story. And I th if I remember from the ballet, Quixote and Sancho are, 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 are kind of peripheral figures for a loss of, for a loss of mm. what happens. Yes. So I think Wasserman has done something very interesting here with trying to create the form of the novel, trying to, trying to imitate or mirror and reflect that sort of structure as well as some of the content. So you have a very interesting formal structure. Um, and it does have many Brechtian elements, of course, because you have the performers, the prisoners, putting on, on costumes and, taking and playing characters in the onstage play. But you also, in some productions, you also have some of the characters from, uh, uh, from Kisana. Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, the, uh, the character that Quixote is in real life, because Quixote is actually a character that is played by an alter ego, which is Kisana. Um, in his real life, the characters who exist in that real life, which also exists in this play, they are sometimes double cast. So when you have the performers being double cast both as prisoners and in his real life, you start to get some really unusual um, relationships being established between characters, personas, and characters in these various different frames. And so what Wasserman was doing was trying to create an interesting way of depicting the, the mammoth quality of this novel. Um, the other thing I'd say about it is that part of its structure, you were talking about the, the structure of um, some of the other plays. The first half of this structure works towards 
um, uh, Cervantes telling this story that is successful. And it, at the big middle point of the show, he is... He is being able to persuade, he is able to persuade Dulcinea, uh, Aldonsa, that she is in fact this beautiful woman, Dulcinea. And we have the song, The Impossible Dream, and that's the center point. And then what can happen after that? This successful moment where everybody is being taken along with this romantic story of optimism and idealism is that everything starts to fall apart. And so the second half is where things start to fall apart. So you have this arch structure that allows those two things to come through. But alongside that, you have the outer ring of the politics, which, of course, in the 1950s could have well related to things like McCarthyism and the House Un-American Activities Committee that were all taking place at that time. So you have many different facets of it. Um, and clearly in this production, uh, though the Inquisition characters are dressed in ways that try to help you to think of those in contemporary terms... Um, I'm not going to give too much away. Um, but the other thing we were just very briefly going to mention was the idealism of this um, show. And I had a question which I thought we might think about jo jointly for a couple of moments, but also open to you. Um, thinking about whether what Cervantes was writing was idealism or whether what he was trying to do was to create a biting satire of the optimism and the romance of what was going before him. And equally then, when you turn that into a musical, there is the question that we always get in relation to musical theatre. Does the musical itself, because of the music within it, Brecht talked about um, satire being all washed out by the music, does the music raise the utopian vision to the extent that you lose sense of the satire? So two questions there, and I think everybody will probably have a different response. We were talking about it earlier. Yeah, well, I mean, perhaps I can start off just by talking, by, by going back to the novel and thinking about how idealistic that is. And, and um, specialists and scholars are, are, are split on this in, yeah. into two distinct camps, as you can, as you can imagine. Um, so, so there's the funny book school and, and the romantic school to uh, th those two approaches to, to Don Quixote. There's no doubt at all that Don Quixote started life as a, as, as a parody. It was meant to make the readers laugh and it, and it did make the readers laugh and they probably laughed at the idealism, Don Quixote creating uh, this wonderful um, woman, Dulcinea, um, out of Aldonza, Lorenzo, a, 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 a a peasant girl. Um, but as the novel goes on, and particularly in the, in the 10 intervening years before part two, I think Cervantes's attitude to his creation and to his novel changes a little bit. And when you get to the very end of, um, should, I talk, should I give it away? I know spoilers are, are dangerous, but at the very, oh. very end of part two of <laughs> Don Quixote, Don Quixote is, is defeated. He's still as a knight and he's defeated. And on the beach in Barcelona, he has a sword at his throat and he's being told, um, you have to admit that Dulcinea is not the most beautiful woman in, in the world uh, and you have to uh, go back to your village. And he says... No, kill me. Dulcinea 
is the most beautiful woman in the world. And I think readers would have welled up a little bit at that, at, at that point. So there's certainly the evidence there for, for this more idealistic um, reading of Don Quixote. But it was one that was developed particularly by the German romantics and, and has, and has um, continued to be the predominant reading in, in Spain in the last uh, 100, 150 years. So Don Quixote, for many Spaniards, is an idealistic figure, and Sancho Panza is forms that other half of the Spanish character, the pragmatist and the mm-hmm. uh, and the realist. And it's 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 actually quite difficult to argue with uh, colleagues in Spain sometimes that Don Quixote is is a mad fool, which he mm-hmm. which he which he is as well. Yes, um, I'm going to just read one quote that Cervantes says. Actually, in the show, you will hear this. And Cervantes says, I have lived nearly 50 years and I've seen life as it is, pain, misery, hunger, cruelty beyond belief. I've heard the singing from taverns and the moans from bundles of filth on the streets. I've been a soldier and seen my comrades fall in battle or die more slowly under the lash in Africa. I've held them in my arms at the final moment. These were men who saw life as it is, yet they died despairing. No glory, no gallant last words, only their eyes filled with confusion whimpering the question, why? I don't think they were asked, they asked why they were dying, but why they had lived. When life itself seems lunatic, who knows where madness lies? Perhaps to be too practical is madness. To surrender dreams, this may be madness. To seek treasure when there is only trash. Too much sanity may be madness. And maddest of all, to see life as it is and not as it should be. So the question for you to start thinking about is whether you interpret this musical this afternoon as optimistic or satirical, romantic or pessimistic. And on that note, we're going to open for questions. (laughs) Does anyone have any questions? Mm. Thank you. Hello, can you hear me? Um, just for a quick question, I'm sure you've been asked this question a number of times. I mean, we will agree, I'm sure, here that Don Quixote is a wonderful book. But what relevance does the book have for today in these, some people would call, troubled times we have in the UK? What relevance does it have today? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, I think... Um, well, it, it, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, it's... it's it, it formally, it still it still has has a relevance. It's still you know it's it's been instrumental in in the creative lives of of, of so many writers and artists uh, since who who just see the read for the first time and in the purest form some of the some of the tricks that an artist can 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 get away with in in, in creating a work. But I mean. It, um, I think the the, the, the the broader question of a, of a social relevance probably just goes back to that, to what we've just been talking about. I mean, whether you whether you see um, a, 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 um, see a future in that kind of, kind of idealism, whether it's worth creating these these um, these wonderful figures, these wonderful ideas, and and chasing these dreams. Uh, qu- quixotically, you know, qu- quixotic is a is a word which I think, generally speaking, is positively valued, isn't it? If you're quixotic, you you would you would fail, but you would you would you would tr- you would try hard, and 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 you know, you could say what what more 
what more can we do? And and and, and the other thing I'd, I'd add, perhaps, is that Cervantes always strikes me as a very as a very democratic writer. So Sancho Panza is several rungs below uh, Alonso Quijano in 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 the Spanish society of the time, but he turns out to be, for example, a good governor. In, in part two of, of Don Quixote, using his innate common sense. So I think that's, uh, Cervantes' humanity is evident, is evident there as, as well. And I think if, if, if more of us thought like that, the world would be a better place. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Man of La Mancha too has that, because, because of this um, setting, this double setting of putting it into the prison, we can all um, find examples, contemporary examples, of um, people being uh, upset by kangaroo courts, um, of people being imprisoned without charge, without any knowledge of why they've been imprisoned. You know, I think the contemporary relevance of the of Man of La Mancha is, is quite strong because of the way he wrote it with this double framing. Yeah. Yeah. It's an observation and a, and a question. Um, uh, I knew Dale Wasserman um, not long before he died. I was going to put on a production of, of, of Man of the Mancha with actor musicians, and Dale got very excited about it. Um, but in, I, I, I was interested when you said that uh, they didn't really have any success on Broadway mm. after the show, after the success of Man of La Mancha. Uh, oh, the, those writers, yeah. yes. And I can't help thinking that it was not in a, in it partly to do with the fact that, that um, they just didn't get on. And so I had meetings with Dale, who was extraordinary. I didn't know a bit about him being a hobo, I have to say, but he was, ex- you know, he lived in Haiti, for goodness sake, for years. He was an extraordinary man. Um, and he said, I think it's a great idea, but you've got to talk to Mitch Lee because he's really difficult. So I went to New York and talked to Mitchell, and he said, yeah, Dale's really difficult, but I think <laughs> And then I thought, what do I do about Joe Darien? And both of them said, oh, Joe will do whatever we tell him to do. <laughs> so I, in the end, we, we were going to do it, and then there was a rights issue with, with what became the, the last Broadway revival. Yeah. So it didn't happen. But I can't help wondering, you mentioned a kind of Broadway royalty, if you like, which... which um, bookended their production, which was starting with West Side Story mm. and then Cabaret, mm. and you've got those writer teams who were so part of the lifeblood of Broadway, mm. and I can't help wondering, do you think maybe there was some sort of snobbery about, about this show which didn't have any lineage that you could trace? Um, Mm. Uh, where Pecandra mm. and Ebb and Bernstein and all that, you know, they, were, they, they, they were part of the fabric of Broadway yes. and these guys weren't they were pop musicians and he was a television guy was yeah. there perhaps something that just I don't mitigated? know I mean uh, it, it's a really interesting thought um I, I think two things about that um they but they did try to write things but not with each other they tried to write things separately and I wonder whether you know that moved them into different areas so those attempts were less successful um Wasserman, uh, of course, wrote uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So he was successful still as, as a playwright, but um, the others tried with different partners, and that may be why they weren't successful, as well as um, the fact that you know, they worked from a slightly different area. Um, but they both continued working, so I mean, it, it wasn't like they weren't successful anywhere, it's just that there wasn't another musical. Um, but also, I wonder whether 
you know, this was such an extraordinary thing that maybe they just didn't know where to go after that. You know, it would be all, uh, very difficult to find another equivalent work to set, wouldn't it? Yeah, interesting. Ah, he's just behind you. I just wanted to go back to one of your earlier remarks about the difference in popularity um, of the musical between America and this mm. country. And I was sort of brought up on Gilbert and Sullivan. Mm. And I just wondered how far the tradition of musical theatre in this country mm. affected people's reaction to the American imports, at least initially. Well, it is interesting. Um, there, is, there is, you know, the, the history tells us that, of course, Rodgers and Hammerstein came over here and, and, you know, in the late 50s and early 60s and, and, you know, took the West End by storm and completely took over. But actually, a lot of British musicals carried on happening at that time. So, Bless the Bride and I can't think of any more, King's Rhapsody, was that late? That was earlier. Um, so, what you've got is a, is a, a continuation of, of musical theatre in this country. But... Um, I wonder whether in this country the, there are certain things that we value, and one of them t seems to be the linear narrative, you know, the operetta structure. Um, another thing is something that perhaps I would say this ought to appeal to us, and that's to do with class structures and, and the working class and, and, and the relationships between, between classes. You know, if you look at contemporary... Um, uh, um, I'm trying to think of, of something off, off the top of my head, uh, The Hired Man, for example. So we, we seem to have uh, an interest in, in a, a different type of um, negotiation of class barriers um, and, and be much less interested in the um, exploration of formal structures. And I wonder whether that has something to do with it. But actually, 253 performances here was probably a very successful run. Um, at that time, 1968. And of course, Hair came in shortly afterwards and the Rocky Horror Show. And so there were new things starting to happen that this might then have, the music of this might have seemed, you know, more dated because of this new sort of rock and roll. And, you know, then we get Superstar happening almost, almost immediately afterwards. So there's a sense in which London moved on very quickly from that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, interesting question. Anybody else? Yes. There's, uh, there's been many uh, successful translations of the book into various other media, films, what have you. There must have been many unsuccessful ones <laughs> along the way. Any comments at all on the way that things haven't worked in the past? Because you seem to be implying the thing that the, actually the formal structure, the complex structure of doing it, has been one of the successful things about this musical, other than anything else. Also some great tunes and a great song. Yeah, I mean, mm. you can't beat a great song mm. for making a musical hit. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, it, I mean, on the, on the British stage, I think the most successful um, production of uh, Don Quixote has been the, the recent RSC one, which I, I didn't see it in London, but I saw it in Stratford a few, a, a few years ago when it, when it premiered. And that was, I mean, that had a very good writer, obviously, in James Fenton. But it, what surprised me was that he did try to get the whole of the, <laughs> the book in there and, and some of the formal innovations as well. And that, that was successful because he did that very 
very cleverly, and they use music quite a bit in that produ production as well. The, there, was a, there was another, I mean, earlier attempts of that sort that I'd seen in English had, simply hadn't worked, and there was a, there was a series um, uh, of plays about madness, I think, at the Gate Theatre, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, and Don Quixote featured in that, and I remember the, the, the headline of, of, of the review was simply madness, and, and, it, and, and that applied to the production, not to, not to, not to, to Don Quixote, that, and that really didn't work, but that was a, a sort of blow-by-blow blow attempt to go, through the, to, to go through the novel, and I, I think when I first saw the, the ballet, as I mentioned earlier, that's when my eyes were open to, to the be what I then thought was the best way to, to adapt Don Quixote, which was to, to take to take one of it, one of its elements, and to and, and to run with that. Yeah. Thank you. We are going to have to wind up because uh, uh, we've got to be out of the bar in just a few minutes. I think they're starting to be ready to open up. So um, thank you very much for coming and your questions, and thank you to Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you.